And also, I mean, I, I also think, you know, I mean, you know, syphilis, is, it's pretty bad. You yeah. know, you can't... Uh, Hot take there, Ben. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Syphilis is pretty bad. I agree. I was mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but I want right. Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. All right, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. Uh, and this week, we're, we're finally back. We took a couple weeks off because I was, you know, flying all over the West Coast for these ridiculous internship interviews I'm doing. But we are back. Uh, and this week, we are taking a look at a movie I'm sure that 99% of people who listen to my show have never seen. Um, and I posted the link. It's available on YouTube, of all places. Um, it's a movie called Violette, uh, sometimes called Violette Nozière. Uh, and this, of course, stars, uh, stars Isabelle Huppert. And that's the whole reason we're doing this, because we're kind of continuing our Oscars Bush here on Pop Culture Case Study. So, in order to take a look at this movie, we're bringing in a returned guest, uh, Ben Zook. Thanks for joining me this week. I think it's been I think it's been uh, since American Pastoral, correct? Yeah, I think that's about. Right. God, that was a long time ago. That seems like years ago at this point. Um, so, before we uh, we get into the movie and all that, um, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations based on you know the movie, the movie we're going to cover uh, as far as uh, the new release or the theme, which will be purity. I, I was going to do just uh, Verhoeven uh, recommendations because uh, I know you're pairing this with with L, a uh, movie that I really liked. Uh, but then I realized that there's not, not, not a whole lot of. Uh, Paul Verhoeven movies that I, I really love that much, um, and so I guess I guess I'm gonna recommend Basic Instinct. Instinct, mm. if you haven't seen it, which I really like, it's a very good trashy little thriller. Um, you know, it's very entertaining. And then the other recommendation I'm gonna give is gonna be for uh, Huppert, who is really great in a movie from 2001 called The Piano Teacher uh, by Michael Haneke which is is truly truly a, a great film if, if you seek it out you know that was the second choice for this week that was the other movie i almost picked so we're we're getting both of those in here one way or another with uh, recommendations or with the movie uh all right so uh we're gonna take a little break and then i'll talk about purity of all things and then uh we'll bring ben back to talk about violette this is chris maynard i'm host of the following films podcast Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on the Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. <laughs> Better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. Today we're talking about purity. Uh, and sometimes when you're doing research, like I am for this show, you look up you know, what you're thinking about, like purity in this case, and you really find you have to define the opposite. Because purity, because purity is just the absence of vice, okay? So what is vice? So vice is a practice, a behavior, or a habit that is considered immoral, sinful, criminal, rude, depraved, or degrading in society at large. It can also just refer to a fault or a negative character trait uh, or any bad or unhealthy habit, like an addiction to smoking, for instance, people have called a vice, or overeating. So vices are usually talked about in in the idea of like a person's character or their temperament rather than their morality. Okay, so the modern English word that best captures the meaning of vice is the word vicious, which actually means full of vice. So the word vice comes from the Latin word Vitium, meaning falling, meaning failing or defect. So, of course, vice comes up a lot when you're talking about religion. So some religious police uh, are essentially morality squads that monitors for dress codes, um, observance of uh, prayer time, consumption of foods and beverages that are unlawful, um, or people or people having sexual relationships that, quote unquote, shouldn't or or LGBT behavior. So in Buddhism, 
there's what they call 108 defilements or vices, and they're all prohibited. And they're subdivided into 10 bonds. So the bonds are uh, about shame, embarrassment, jealousy, stinginess, remorse, drowsiness, distraction, torpor, anger, and concealment of wrongdoing. Now, in Christianity, there's basically two kinds of vice. Vices that come from the physical organism, like instincts, which can become, which can become, in their words, perverse, like lust, or vices that come from false idolatry in the spiritual realm. Now, if you go back to some of the classics, Dante, of course, uh, author of of the Divine Comedy, uh, listed seven deadly vices. So you have pride or vanity, envy or jealousy, wrath or anger, sloth or laziness, avarice, gluttony. And lust. And of course, if you want to hear all about these, you should go back to our episode on the movie Seven, uh, which talked all about those seven deadly sins. And in Islam, the Quran and other religious writings provide prohibitions against acts that are seen as immoral. Now, Ibn Abi Dunya, a ninth century scholar and tutor, described seven prohibitions against vices in his writings. And these are ire, envy, slander, obscenity, intoxicants, and instruments of pleasure. All right, so that's what vice is. So when you're thinking about what purity is, kind of flip it around, flip it on its head. Like if you don't do any of these things, then you are pure. Uh, and of course, we'll focus a lot on sexual purity because that's really how purity comes up in this movie. All right, so I mentioned we were going to talk about sexual purity. So a lot of these, anything we cover will be focused a lot on gender differences because I'm sure you know this by now, but when you're talking about sexual purity, there is a big discrepancy between genders. And of course, we're just talking male, female here, I think for ease. Uh, I think, you know, especially in the kind of changing world we're in, there are more than two genders for sure. But uh, we are talking just male, female for this particular article. So this article is from Kelly and Bazzini in 2001. And they're talking about gender, sexual experience, and the sexual double standard. These are evaluations of female contraceptive behavior. So really the purpose is to compare men's and women's perceptions of female contraceptive behavior and investigate the relationship between sexual experience and these perceptions. So they got 146 uh, subjects. They had 76 males and 70 females, and they're randomly assigned to one of three sexual scenarios. So one, uh, a man provided the condom in a sexual encounter. Two, a female provided the condom in a sexual encounter. Or three, no condom was used. So then each person was asked to rate the female participant on a bunch of behavioral and personality measures and to complete a scale called the sexual experience scale to get that kind of comparison. So in these scenarios, to give a little more detail, were just um, diary entries about a woman named Anne Marie. So um, the first one, Anne Marie had a casual sexual encounter with a male college student from one of her classes. Um, and, and as I said, they were then uh, put into these kind of different categories. One, the male college student provided the condom. Two, the female did. And three, none did at all. So in terms of the results, they did show differences in the way men and women perceived Anne-Marie in this circumstance. There was a positive correlation that was found between sexual experience and more favorable perceptions of the sexually prepared female. So the more sex that you have personally had, the more you're likely to see this woman as doing something positive by providing the contraceptive in that situation. So to kind of break it down a little further, um, contrary to what previous research had said, female participants in this study rated the female target most positively when she provided the condom and most negatively when no condom was used at all. And this was on four different assessments, the appropriateness of her behavior, um, their feelings about her behavior, sense of maturity, and interest in being acquainted with this person. So one reason for the changes in attitudes between previous studies is, is, that this, is that this is more modern. Um, so maybe sexual attitudes are changing over time. And if you look at the statistics as far as condom use by women, uh, it's actually been increasing. Um, this is an older article, but from 1982 to 1990, um, it went from 12 to 18%. Um, and then from 1988 to 1995, it went from 15 to 20% use. So this increase in usage may suggest a more accepting view of contraceptives and those that use them. Now, despite this, 
uh, despite these kind of liberal attitudes of the people in the sample, they believe that the man in the scenario would feel more negatively about the target's behavior if she was the condom provider. So they feel okay about her, but they still believe that there is this double standard and men will see them as more negative. And this is really interesting because in this study, at least, the 76 men in the sample did not hold that kind of attitude toward the sexually prepared woman. And actually, they found in this study that the men gave them a the men gave her a less favorable rating when her partner was the one providing the condom as compared to when she did. And they also rated her as most mature when she provided the the condom and were least interested in getting to know her when the male in the encounter provided the condom. And there's actually studies out there that show about 80% of college males reject this idea that men should always be the sexual initiators. Now, of course, there is one huge limitation in this study is that we're only rating the woman in the scenario. We're not rating the man's behavior at all. So without that, we don't really have that comparison, right? So we don't know if there truly is a double standard. It would be really interesting to see how they rated men in the same situation as far in, as far as being the one to supply the contraceptives in this situation. I think the most interesting part about this is kind of the difference between the way the women in the sample assumed men would react and the way they did. So in this sample, women's fear of how a sexually assertive woman might be perceived by a male partner still appears to be this obstacle in decision-making about condom usage, even if the fear is actually unfounded when we look at the reports of the male participants. But even if this isn't true, even if the double standard isn't necessarily there, that fear does play a role in people's unwillingness to provide a condom during these sexual interactions. And if you move that on down the line, that affects sexual health and public health. So it's actually a big deal to try and remove this idea of purity and how, how you're looked at if you're the one who provides the contraceptive. All right, so that's basically it for our psychological section. So I think we'll cover a lot of stuff when we talk with Benzuk about purity in Violette Nozier, um, which I'm sure I'm butchering the French, and I apologize for that. But um, this is, of course, based on a true story um, about a woman who becomes a killer. Um, but I think so much of that is really the foundation of it is in how she's treated by her family and by men and by society at large and what's expected of women to be to be both sexually desirable and a symbol of purity, um, which, of course, you cannot be both. Um, it's impossible. And it's something that actually, I think, still has effects today. This is not something that just, you know, just happens years and years and years ago. I mean, if you look at our politics now in the United States and look at all the other groups of people who are angry at sing single mothers and yet are are pro-life, I mean, I think we, we run into some problems there where we want them to be, we want women to be all things at all times. And it takes away their ability to kind of be human uh, and, and be, and be individuals. Uh, and I think this all really comes from this idea, this kind of backwards idea of what it is to be pure and without vice, because no human is pure. No human is without vice. I think, you know, not to be that guy, but I think vices make life interesting. It helps, I think, our mistakes help us get to a point where we want to be in our lives. And if we were completely pure for every moment of our lives, then I think we're missing out on all the great things that life actually has to offer. All right. Um, so that's it for the psychological section. Uh, when we come back, Ben Zook will return um, to talk about Violette Nozier. Most people know Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh, oh so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so we're back from our break. Uh, ben, welcome back. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Violet. I'm sure this is not a movie that was uh, that was terribly known. It was something I definitely had to look up. So was this your first watch? Oh, definitely. 
Um, it's really rare. I want to give, you know, my hat is off to you, Dave, because it is really rare. True hipster moment here. Like, uh, well, it's really rare that someone brings up a movie to me that I haven't seen or heard about. Um, and, and so again, my hat is off to you and I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad I watched this. So, uh, um, I mean, I don't know. Should we get right into it? Yeah. Well, what were kind of your, your general thoughts about the movie after this first watch? I don't know if this is aged very well. Mm. Um, I like Cooper in this role a lot. I think she's pretty good. Uh, but even that, even that being said, um, it's very obvious from the beginning that she's a little too old, uh, even you know at, yeah. at this time in 1978 for for this part. Uh, it took a while for me to realize that she was supposed to be in high school. Um, Same. You know, it took yep. took me a good 30 <laughs> minutes uh, to realize that. And and um, then when I started to get into it, I was like, OK, this is going to be pretty good. But then all the flashbacks and all the nonlinear storytelling, which is really, uh, really tough. And, there and they are, show there up at odd things. times, too. It's not <laughs> as if it's not as if the whole movie is nonlinear. It's pretty uh-huh. linear until I think like maybe two thirds of the way through the yeah. movie. And then all of yeah. a sudden there's this screeching, the tires screech and we kind of flip things around, which was definitely an odd choice. I think it's still it still made me really interested in watching Claude Chabrol's other work, right? Uh, but I, but I feel like maybe I, I did him a disservice by watching this one. You know, starting first. here, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of those movies that I think survives on a performance. I think if you have mm-hmm. if you have a lesser actress in this role, I think I think this movie is kind of a snooze fest. Like, I don't think it's it's that interesting without her just kind of incredible performance here. But you are right. I actually, you know, looked up. I didn't even realize when I first put this on that this is based on a true story had no clue uh so then kind of did some research afterwards about it and had no clue that she was supposed to be that young i mean i think she was like 22 or 23 uh when she was cast in this film and i think she's supposed to be what 15 15 16 something yeah like that. she's supposed to be in high school early high school and um you know who i think was in yeah so she would have been 25 right when this came out um so yeah a little bit just a little bit too old um you know it's hard it's hard to really take that leap uh she's great she's great in the right. movie um like i'm gonna you know not to not to like uh you know criticize her for that um it's weird it's just weird that they went with that with that i i would assume just make her older uh you know make her a college mm. student or whatever uh but i guess maybe that wouldn't have the same impact or whatever uh yeah i think the issues um, with her parents maybe wouldn't have had the impact that it needed if you make her a college student because then as an audience don't you start thinking well then just leave like (laughs) and also i mean i also think you know i mean you know syphilis is it's pretty bad you know you can't uh, hot take there uh, ben yeah (laughs) syphilis is pretty bad i agree (laughs) um and there's other things there's other things too i think in the movie beyond just like these things because normally i can get over uh, stuff like that. Um, right. You know, when, when I watch Picnic with William, William Holden and he's playing like a 20 year old or whatever, I know it's ridiculous, but <laughs> but the movie is well written and well directed enough that I can get over it. Right. Um, but there's other things going on here. Uh, the ending here feels really, really sympathetic towards the main character. And I couldn't help but feel that up until that point, they had really sold us on her being a really manipulative, right. uh, crazy, uh, cold-blooded person, and so I'm just wondering, well, what, you know, why should I feel bad for her when this is that what I'm supposed to feel? Maybe, yeah. maybe not. Yeah, I, I, I actually totally agree with that, and I think that leads us right into Chabrol's direction because I think that that was actually a choice that he made, and that's why that kind of non-linear storytelling kind of shows up at the end and it's designed. So we're not sure if she was abused or not. So we're not sure like, Oh, maybe we should feel bad for this person. And it seemed like a really strange choice, especially if you look at kind of how the movie moves throughout the rest of the two hour runtime, there's nothing in there. It's like they build her up as this almost like despicable character. And then they 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 feel like they can't quite they can't quite make make that decision so they give you something to hold on to so you kind of like her it feels like Chabrol wanted to make the movie about the cold-blooded 
narcissist here and that then they had to tag on this thing from the real story that she got pardoned and everything. Right. And I don't know. I don't know if the two things serve each other very well. I don't know. It's the first it's the first clutch of role <laughs> movie I've seen. Maybe they're all like this. <laughs> maybe that's uh, his maybe style. I'm being a real a real dick uh right now. <laughs> uh but I don't I don't know. So <laughs> I think one of the things, one of the choices he makes uh, as a director that I just absolutely love is anytime there's any amount of passion um, or anyone showing affection, it's always just out of sight and behind walls and behind closed doors, even in the kind of family home where there's there's one shot where um, where our main character Violette is in her room and her parents are kind of behind this wall by the door kissing and and I love that they don't have that happen in front of her, even if it's clear that she knows what's going on. Everything is always, always just a little bit disguised. Yeah, no, I like I like that scene very much. I think I think it really does play into her character in terms of the of the linear story that we were being sold on at first. I thought, okay, this is going to really pay off in an interesting way. That oh, like having to hear her parents uh, make love in that way, maybe you know. Uh, her thinking of that probably influenced her decisions later on or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it is interesting on that level. Yeah. The other thing I like is the opening. There's this, the first shot is like a shot of bars and you get this slow pan through them. And then eventually we get to our main character. And I thought, you know, looking back on that, that was really interesting considering this is a story of a killer and we don't realize that at the beginning of the uh-huh. film. So having that kind of prison, uh, I, I, I kind of, uh, that, that kind of prison look at the very beginning and then showing her is really interesting, but it's, it makes me think like, I, I would guess in France, everyone knows who this person is. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a little bit over the top. If you know, it's like, it's like, you know, making a movie about Charles Manson and showing a prison at the beginning, like, Oh, okay. We get or, it. Or I guess He's a OJ, bad guy. OJ. Right. Really. OJ. Yeah. 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 There you go. That's actually probably um, a better. E- Eber compare, compares her to Lizzie Borden being sort mm. of like a French version of Lizzie Borden, which again, which again feeds into the idea that I don't know. I don't know many people who have a lot of sympathy for Lizzie Borden, uh, e- right. you know, back then, even now, um, so uh, it, it again, it again makes me question what's going on in the ending. Uh, maybe that's the point. Uh, there are also a number of things I was a little confused of, uh, and I guess I'm just gonna sound like a real dumbass uh, asking you this. <laughs> for the nine people um, who've seen this but, movie. Yes, <laughs> but like like halfway halfway through, she has that uh, she meets a grandfather type figure um, mm-hmm. for lunch. And she calls him Papa, and he says not to call her that. And there's, they sort of imply that he has had sex with her and that she is now blackmailing uh, him. Um, and I didn't understand who he was. Was okay. he her grandfather? I don't think so. All right. Uh, so <laughs> maybe we're both idiots, so we might both be wrong. So prepare yourself. But there's this whole subplot that she is hiding this picture of a man who is, mm-hmm. who is tied to her mother in some way. Right. So I took that as that is her real father. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I hope that's right. (laughs) Um, So I actually really like that scene a lot. I think I, I, I would like it more if, if the movie didn't flip back to trying to make her a likable character because it makes her even more manipulative. Like she clearly doesn't really care about this person. She's doing this for her own purposes. Like no matter, no matter who she kind of steps on, it doesn't matter to her. Yeah, I would I would like have liked you know that movie very much. And I do think we get that for the most part. Yeah. It's just in some of these flashbacks and in the ending where where I think um you know Chabrol kind of kind of betrays that idea. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I'm 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 uh I'm I really do wonder what what was up with that. Uh right. what what the aim uh with that was. Um and and so I don't know, I feel bad that I didn't like it uh you know enough. <laughs> Right. Um, beyond beyond just her performance, which I thought was great. And it was great. I had never seen her younger uh, work. Yeah. Uh, I've only seen The Piano Teacher and, uh, you know, and Amore and uh, Elle. And both of those movies make make uh, make great use of her age at that time. Right. And right. and so seeing her as a young woman is, is, is you know, is pretty great. Um, I'm really, really upset if she doesn't get nominated uh, for the Oscar uh, for for Elle. Not to change the subject, uh, but uh, Michael Denniston keeps telling us that you and me, we, we, we just like to talk about the Oscars. So 
Um, <laughs> I've given up at this point. I'm just going to, you know, go right into that. <laughs> Perfect. I think um, I, one, I will talk about L later, but I completely agree with you. Let's, <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, the only okay. other thing for direction, just kind of a general thing. I feel like there were a lot of really unclear transitions, like moving from scene to scene. It would take me a good couple minutes to figure out, okay, where are we? When are we? Who are these new people? There was like this uh, lag and you just felt – I felt constantly confused. I don't know how much of that is – of course, you're also reading sub subtitles and kind of catching up uh, in that way. But I did feel like there were these really jarring transitions. I thought he did well in the beginning of the film where we have this really cool transition where you show her face really sad and then you hear her laughter leading into this flashback. I thought that was really well done. But throughout the rest of the film, there's all these moments where I'm like, OK, who are – who are these people to her and why do I care at this moment? And even so the flashbacks stylistically, he makes some weird choices too. Mm -hmm. um, the flashbacks to her childhood have that really cheesy kind of glossed over effect. And, and I just wonder why, um, you know, why do that in a, in a movie that, that clearly has so much, you know, panache and, and mm -hmm. edgy edginess, um, you know, why do something so cheesy in, in those flashbacks to her childhood. And then with the parents, it really uh, confused me that at one point, like in the beginning, the parents are presented as middle class or or even poor. Mm -hmm. And then and then for whatever reason, in the second half of the movie, uh, you know, in the story that we're getting that's being told just with uh, Violette and her parents, they they seem all dressed up. Yeah, and up, very fancy. All of a sudden, yeah. And I, and I and I did I miss something? Were they going to a dinner or no, something? I, I, don't I don't think know. you missed anything. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. It just seems like, well, uh, we want it for this moment, uh, so we're going to have them in nice clothes because it it looks better uh, on film in this moment. But it doesn't really. I agree, it doesn't match up with the with the images that were given throughout the first at least the first half of the film. Yeah. yeah, so it's All funny right. we're we're very much in in agreement. Yeah, first uh, time for really everything, bad. Ben. It's, <laughs> it was bound to happen. It's <laughs> it's like a broken clock. It's it's bound to happen. All right, um, so let's move on to the acting. So of course we have to talk about Hubert, um, who I think is just phenomenal here, and I think. What really struck me about this performance is that she is almost two different characters. If you look at her when she's with her parents and when you look at her when she's out with everyone else, and yet it feels like the same person. And I think it really captures that that kind of that teenage world where when you're with your parents and you're home, mm -hmm. you're very respectful and you do what you're told and then you get some freedom and you do whatever you can get away with. And I thought she did a great job at channeling that. I think she really underplays these moments of manipulation, yeah. um, you know, with the men that she's with and everything. And, and you really, you really almost see it from her side more, more so, more so than, than theirs. Uh, and, and you, you, you end up kind of rooting for her to um, dupe these guys out of their money, um, you know? And so, uh, yeah, she, I mean, for, for a younger actress to, to have that kind of skill, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at 25, you know, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anyone else in this film who, who stood out to you as far as their performance? Well, I believe, is it Stéphane Audren, the, who I must've been playing the mother, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And she, yeah, she was very good. And, um, you know, she comes back in a play in the third act in an interesting way and just yeah. seems to really, um, resent her child, which is an interesting emotion to see a mother play. Uh, you right. don't get to see that a lot. Um, yeah, she was very good. I have no idea who she is. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, I think out of everyone in the film, she was given other than other than uh, Violette, of course. She was given the most to do. She was given the most scenes. She had these, you know, kind of wonderful interactions with her husband, and then these some very sweet interactions with her daughter, like when she finds the hidden picture and mm. kind of them like reminiscing about this person. And then, like you said, for that to all flip and for very valid reasons for that to all flip at the end yeah. of the end of the film. And again, still feel convincing. I was really impressed with her. I thought everyone else in the film, it was very much like, okay, this is a walk on role. Uh, I mean, I think the guy who played um, her boyfriend who was trying to get mm -hmm. all this money out of her was fine, but there wasn't a lot for him to do. He was, there to kind of look dashing and get her to do these things. And it was really her carrying those moments, I thought. 
Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. So uh, let's move on to the writing, which I think is probably the most problematic uh, section of the film. There's a lot of really interesting uh, decisions. We talked about the nonlinear storytelling, um, which I think is a big, big problem. But there's also a scene. There's a scene as she's poisoning her parents that was way over the top for me. Like the dad actually, I think, like pulls her aside and says, look me in the eyes. If I take this medication, what will happen? And it was like, what are we, what are we doing? This like, it was almost camp, like to that level of, I was like, it took me completely out of that scene where there was a lot of suspense in that moment and then all completely gone. I feel like those scenes could be more effective if we weren't, if the movie wasn't so busy with all sorts of other stuff. If the movie had really focused and sat down and and built a you know a relationship between violette and her father um Mm -hmm. we get an early scene where violette's father uh seems to be kind of ogling her and touching her in inappropriate ways and that's never really developed in any sort of significant way and i'm looking at the credits here we got like three screenwriters uh credited on this movie uh none of them are claude chabral and 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 it's also based on this book and so i don't know if this is a case of like a best-selling book or whatever that had to be mm. um, truncated and uh, mixed up in order to get every single moment sure. on screen. Um, uh, I really don't know. Uh, so <laughs> this is right. this is this is thousands of miles away and several <laughs> decades uh, away uh, for for me to be able to say. Uh, but um, there definitely seems to be something holding the movie back in in many regards. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a really interesting point because, you know, as, as kind of foreigners to this film, we don't know who she's going to end up being and what she's going to end up doing. So as you look back, I think sometimes the first half of the film feels a little bit meandering and like, okay, if this is a story of a killer, like a, a famous murderer, what are we doing here for the first 45 minutes until we meet this boyfriend who kind of maybe puts her on this more dangerous path of kind of trying to manipulate people and getting this money out of people, which leads to a lot of bad things. But the the beginning, although interesting, as I look back, seems like a little bit empty and a little bit hollow. Yeah, I completely I, I completely agree. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore uh, when I agree with you, uh, Dave. <laughs> Uh, like yes. I feel like we have great exchanges when we when we disagree and and we argue and and now it's just like yep yeah, you know you're right you're completely right <laughs> so, so let me let me ask you something maybe you'll disagree with me on this point because the only other point I have for the writing one thing that really stuck with me is you know it's tough to have a character like this who we root for in any way because mm-hmm. whether she's good or bad she is the protagonist of this story she's the person we're following and even at the beginning of the movie we find out she has syphilis. Right. And she's still sleeping with random people, like probably infecting them as well. So I have this in my head of like, God, how can I root for this person? So I was wondering if you thought the decision to tell us that this guy is after her money, does that balance out her difficult and kind of dangerous choices? Does it make us root for her a little bit more? The ending definitely tries to get us on her side yeah. and it's like, oh, she she had to do this and she had to do that. And, and but but you get to the point where it's like, well, is she telling the truth here or is she lying like she has sure. so often throughout the rest of the movie? And so, I mean, you definitely I think the, the secret to any antihero is you ha- is you have to love to hate them. You have to mm. enjoy watching them do the wrong thing over and over and over again. I do you think, think this character bad fits in with that? a good example of that. Um, not quite. And it's mm-hmm. probably because of the, the nonlinear structure that, that keeps pulling us back and forth and back and forth in several different direct directions. I really wanted to settle down and right. just watch her manipulate, uh, manipulate these stupid guys into right. giving her uh, all their money. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would have enjoyed that. I would have really enjoyed this syphilis ridden uh, teenager who, who tricks guys over and over again into giving her, her th- their, their money. Um, you know, if the film had just settled down and just done that. Uh, right. You know, I think it would have been a great film. See, I love when you fall into my little traps, Ben, when when you say things like that. <laughs> I would love to watch this syphilis ridden teenager because that, you know, will be the opening of the episode. It's almost there's guaranteed. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. This is what movies are about. This is why that's why Breaking Bad was such yeah. a huge hit in that you get to watch 
the, the, the science teacher get revenge on all the horrible things in his life right. that, you know, took advantage of him. Same thing with, with syphilis girl here. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you just do one on a certain level if they had presented it in a way that you were like, oh, yeah, she got fucked over by her parents. She got fucked over by this guy. Um, yeah, take advantage of all the, the, that these people are willing to give you um, right. kind of thing. That's, you know, that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think uh, looking back, I think if they make two changes to this movie, I like it a lot more. If they take out that last flashback of her father, mm -hmm. like maybe mm -hmm. inappropriately bouncing her on his knee and you take out the kind of post credit, like this is what happened with her life. Like she got out of jail and she had kids and everything was happy and great. If you take those two things out and you just keep her a villain – I think this is really enjoyable, and especially with Huppert's performance, which is almost taking this this glee in this manipulation, and I think it makes it a lot of fun, but it just takes the bite out of it in the last 15 minutes. I, I think you got to take out the nonlinear structure. I think you got to make this like a buck 30 uh, nine yeah. minutes, yeah, and and it would be great. It would be it would be terrific, and and she is terrific. Yeah, she is like I love watching her. In anything, this is the third, um, you know, movie where she's a lead, where I am just completely taken with her. So, and and, and in a mess uh, movie like this, <laughs> that I would say this is, uh, you know, that's really saying something. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. All right, uh, so let's move to production value. So, one of the things that stands out to me is the house. Uh, the house that she and her parents live in. And it's it can also be kind of filed under direction here. But I love how small the area is and how we get that feeling of feeling trapped and feeling cramped that she does as a teenager. And I think we feel that as the audience because kind of behind every corner, her parents are there or something is constantly in her way. And I love that we get that that actual feeling as we move through. I mean, I can only go back to what I said before, which is that I'm really kind of uh, left in the dark uh, of this decision to present her home life as one thing in the beginning as like right. a middle class poor uh, household. And then and then, you know, in the middle, oh, suddenly they're they look, you know, really ritzy and fancy <laughs> and I don't know what's going on. And so I kind of I don't I really don't know what's going on with that decision especially if it's um, because after she stole their money like yeah I they, mean, what, somehow they should be poorer like, right just in rags like just <laughs> yeah it definitely doesn't make a lot of sense but i think i'm more talking about in the you know the first half to first two thirds of, of the movie where she's still at home before she's done these terrible things i think you get you get that that feeling of just being completely trapped and can't move I thought it was all fine. I thought all that was fine. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. There, there is a claustrophobia. Uh, when she goes through a room, it looks like she's going to a closet of some right. sort. Um, you know, she's she she feels cornered. And, and they did a great job in respect to all that. Um, you know, I don't have I don't have much else to say about about the production value. All right. <laughs> the only other thing I, I noticed uh, that I really enjoyed as far as production value was her kind of physical transformation uh, when she's at the home and when she's out, and they really point mm -hmm. point a finger at it when she almost goes home with her full face of makeup on and then you see her when it's all off and not only does she act like a different person but she looks like a different person and i really like that little touch yeah no i yeah that, that was great as well yeah all right uh so let's move on to our favorite scenes so what's one of your favorite scenes ben you know, I, I'm going to have to go with uh, the uh, the thing that you hated, what you thought was over the top uh, with, with her. <laughs> oh, you just had her, to her disagree. Parents. You just couldn't um, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, I can see how that scene can you could see that scene as a detriment to the whole of the movie. I can understand that. Uh, but I think that scene taken on its own. Uh, I think the father is doing really good work. I think the mother is doing good work. I think she's mm -hmm. doing good work. It w it was one of the points in the movie where where I really felt it come alive um, in a way that it hadn't for the rest of it. So uh, I'm gonna I am gonna disagree with you, Dave. <laughs> it was bound so to happen. Take, take that. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the scene overall is quite good. I think it's just that one line that bothers me. And then I also have to remember, okay, this is translated. Maybe it's not quite that dramatic in French. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, 
from an English viewer's perspective, it was a little too much for me. And and I think it bothered me so much because the rest of the scene is so good. And we're, and I'm so in that moment. So then when I read that very dramatic line, it's kind of like, oof, man, we were so close to doing something good here. And it just we just didn't quite get there. Uh, but I, I, I feel I feel like if we hadn't seen the father like ogle her and kind of touch her in that way, that scene would play so much better. Yeah. Um, now, like, it, again, it feels like a movie kind of in conflict with itself. Um, and, and yeah, like, how can you feel much? For that father, if he's actually kind of a perv, right? Who, you know, who's, like fine, great, know, drink it. Um, <laughs> but but if you just look at that scene on its own, and you're like, yeah, he really he needed to. He has so much trust in his daughter, who is a who is a fuck up, who is the fuck up daughter. Um, you know, he that's a, that's a, that's a trope. That's a trope. The fuck up uh, child. Yeah, and you know, so um, he had so much faith in her that he wanted so much to believe that she wouldn't lead them down a bad path uh, and it leads to his death. I think, I think that on its own is very moving. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, the, the scene I like, it's, it's near the beginning of the film actually, is there's a scene between uh, Uper and, and a man at this, at this bar, at this cafe where she just kind of, and you talked about her manipulating all these stupid guys, like, and you get this relish in that, like I mentioned, that glee where she like just sits down with him and starts drinking and starts, you know, stealing his bread and butter and just doing whatever she damn well pleases. And I could have watched that for about 20 more minutes and how how enraged he gets when he realized like he's not going to get what he wants out of this interaction, that she is the one who's actually in power. I love that moment. I thought she was so great in it. Yeah, I really like that scene as well. I it's the one time she seems to be manipulating someone who looks younger than her or right. maybe at her own age, uh which is interesting because I don't know what that would be. Um like a 12-year-old, I, right. I don't know. Um but <laughs> in the realm of this movie right. uh where where 25-year-old uh, Isabel Huppert is 14. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> the the constant switching ages definitely will get confusing. Uh, the other scene I really liked and actually had a little bit of humor in it is the and it's kind of awkward humor is that letter writing sequence where the, her parents are like telling her to write this letter uh, to this guy who is supposedly now going to have to marry her and her father trying to work out what she's supposed to say and just the reactions on Uper's face, like just like so frustrated with the situation, but knows that there's nothing she can do about it is just utterly fantastic. Uh, I I barely remember it. Uh, so <laughs> I hope you're not going to use this part of the episode. But... <laughs> well, it's literally, I mean, it's literally I, just a I, scene where – it's literally just—it's literally just the scene where he's trying to get the perfect words down, but she's writing as he's speaking, and he keeps kind of changing how this letter is going to be addressed. And I—I I like this little, like this little bit of humor in this very, very kind of dire situation, given given her her level of disease and and her age and the and the culture that she's a part of. I just love that there was this little bit of levity in the middle of it. So. Yeah, no, I, I definitely enjoy some of the the humor um, throughout. It, you know, just in terms of her being, you know, I forget the word, but there's a really fancy, pretentious word uh, for this type of character uh, who can go through life and just manipulate people to do her bidding um, and uh, to to um, do evil things that uh that the audience roots uh for mm -hmm. um and i see her sort of like that if i could remember that word <laughs> i would sound really great uh but Damn. i cannot <laughs> yeah but i think uh, i mean we've harped on this a bit but i think that's that's where this movie goes wrong is they don't realize quite how fun this character is despite mm -hmm. her doing terrible things it's almost it's almost as if they wanted us to to not like her but more feel sorry for her and and I don't think it's that kind of performance. I think we could see why why she's doing what she's doing, even if we think it's morally just completely corrupt. But it's not a situation. I don't I don't ever pity her because she she is manipulative and she is in control for a lot of the film. That's why I think the ending is tagged on. That's why I think um, 
I mean, not knowing anything about Claude Chabrol, this being his first film that I've watched, I, I think they probably felt like they had to tag on this thing at the end about how the real person did, you know, got, you know, got pardoned and had, had this happen to them and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And that they had to maybe add in the flashbacks through her childhood and all that. Um, you know, it feels, it feels very much not in keeping with the spirit of the film up until that point. And, right. um, I find that very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely do too. Uh, one thing I noticed about this movie in general, before we get to the theme is I think, I think sometimes as American viewers, like we view French film as like, Oh, well this is, this is really impressive and this is really classy, uh -huh. classy <laughs> stuff. Uh, so the fact that essentially a cum rag plays a large part uh, in this movie's climax, uh -huh. it's really like I was just sitting there watching this. Like, is this really happening? Is this is this going to be a major piece of evidence in this film? And it totally is. So, in a weird way, I was kind of charmed by that because I wasn't expecting it. That's something I expect out of American films, not out of European films. So, consider me schooled. And the the French film uh, is nowhere near as classy as I originally thought. And I mean, I think maybe part of it is that they were trying to present this uh, serial killer, uh, you know, person, uh, you know, type that, uh, um, you know, that everyone had known about that had been in tabloids and all that. Um, you know, it reminds me of, of, of uh, Mark Harmon uh, playing that one uh, serial killer. What's his name? What's the name of the guy uh, that they based Science of the Lambs off of with the couch uh, and everything? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, not Dahmer, but uh, what's his name? Um, God damn it. I should have done more uh, research uh, for this, but the name would be uh, Jesus Christ. Why can't I find it? Uh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Oh, Ted Bundy. So yeah. This is sort of similar to, to this is like the French version of the deliberate stranger or whatever. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was kind of good. It was in a weird way, kind of good to see that, that it's, you know, it's oh. nice to kind of break down those barriers a little bit and be like, oh, you know, we're not so bad. <laughs> we're a little bit no, bad, we're, but we're, we're, we're just as, we're, we're just as bad. bad as everyone else. That's fine. <laughs> it is incredible. It is incredible when you, when you think about it, uh, that, 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 that like France and, and, and the U.S. Uh, and I guess, I guess England uh, are all going through like hardcore conservative uh transitions yeah. um you know that's not how you would have expected things to go yeah. maybe 10 years ago so <laughs> yeah you just you never know what's gonna happen all right uh before we move to the theme of purity i just want to say like this movie although like you said it's kind of a mess there's a lot of mistakes made i think a lot of choices i wouldn't have made but i do think it's worth it just for her performance like it is one of those like it it elevates the material way beyond what it what it should be um so i would urge people if you've listened this far and you're still interested to to check out violette i think it's definitely worth a watch uh i think that you know rather than than seeking out violette which isn't really <laughs> readily available anywhere true. uh if you go on <laughs> filmstruck uh the new streaming service for criterion movies and all that you can find several several Claude Chabrol movies, uh, such as Story of Women, Le, Le, La Ceremonie, uh, Les Cousins, La Beau Surge, uh, Masks. Um, those are probably all better than this movie, <laughs> I, and I haven't seen any of them. Well, they um, are on Criterion. So, They're usually assume. a pretty good, pretty good gauge. <laughs> uh, eh, and I'm just and I'm just going to assume all those French pronunciations were absolutely perfect. And we'll just oh, move no, they on. But they were, they were, I, I tried. I really tried. So <laughs> you gave it your best effort. That's all we asked for. All right. Uh, so the theme we chose this week is purity. And it really, as I was watching it, kind of struck me uh, because of all the scenes with her parents and how how important it was for them and society at large for her to be a virgin. Um, and for her to be pure. Uh, and I found that really interesting considering this movie goes down, you know, one of the least pure paths you could imagine. So, so as you were watching this movie and thinking about the theme, uh, what, what popped in your mind? Did the, did you, do you feel like that theme came through? I guess the interesting thing is that we never really see this character in a very pure place at all. Even when she's, you know, a child, there seems to be some sort of, right. Uh, it seems like it seems like kind of like the bad seed, the the 1950s 
uh, movie. I just watched uh, that recently. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it seems kind of like that. It seems like she was born to be this way, or at least that's the movie's viewpoint. Um, so it's like she never really even flirts with with the idea of, of purity. So yeah, I think um, the only I time guess, the only time we see her pure is when she's lying, when she's play acting for sure, her parents. Sure. So even so that's, then, that's who she really is. You know, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I think you bring up a really interesting point. Uh, if they're if they're trying to convince the audience that maybe she was abused as a child, then you know she was kind of before she even started. You know, there were already issues, if you think about purity in that, in the kind of sexual sense, her father has already done things to her that in the eyes, especially of religion or of culture at large, would make her impure or dirty. So maybe this kind of set her on the path before syphilis came into the picture, before she was a rebellious teenager who was out there doing whatever she wanted. Sure. Yeah, I I would agree with that. All right. All right. Um, so uh, at this point, we're going to close the discussion on the movie and talk about the movie we're pairing this with. So the whole reason I chose this movie is because uh, Isabel Pair is going to be not going to be. She is in L, uh, the Paul Verhoeven film that we've referenced a couple times. Uh, and she's getting a lot of press for maybe nomination, maybe an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. And I think she just recently won uh, the Best Actress at the Golden Globes. Um, so she's got a little bit of heat uh, moving into the Oscar nomination. So without giving away anything about the movie, because you've seen it, um, should people be excited to see Elle? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. Um, and that's interesting because I, I don't necessarily um, – I think we've had a lot of trouble with uh, foreign films that don't really pass over – uh, to to the U.S., it seems like I'd have to go all the way back to like Pan's Labyrinth mm. to find a foreign film that really, uh, you know, tr- you know, k- like traveled well. Um, sure, but I was very entertained by Elle. I think uh, people, uh, if they gave it a chance, they would really love it. Um, and I, yeah, to, to fulfill Michael Dennison's dream, um, you know, <laughs> let's just talk about the Oscars. Okay. Uh, you know, Isabel Huppert won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in Drama. Um, I didn't realize it, but I went back and looked at what track record, you know, that award has with, you know, getting an Oscar nomination. And it's actually a pretty good one. Um, you have to go back all the way to um, a movie called Madame Suzatska with Shirley MacLaine, Mm -hmm. um, where a person who won the Golden Globe for Best Actress Drama uh, didn't get nominated. And even then, uh, Madame Suzatska was a three-way tie with two other people who did get nominated. So I I would say that Isabel Huppert's chances of getting nominated are pretty good. Uh, But, you know, a lot of people disagree with me. So I don't know. Um, (laughs) The question is, who doesn't make it? Who doesn't make it? Right. Yeah, it really seems on the cusp. I think uh, two things. You mentioned foreign films that are kind of making the transition, like being crossover, not hits, but, you know, appreciated and enjoyed by American audiences. And I think this year is actually a pretty good year for this. If you look at Elle and you look at The Handmaiden, uh, both movies are, you know, they're not going to tear up the box office. But they're both thought of really well um, by the audiences who did get a chance to see them. So that's that's pretty cool that we're seeing a little bit more of that crossover. And I think as far as the Golden Globes, as far as the nominations transferring over to to the Oscars, I think I think that makes sense because I think most years people in comedies are not going to get nominated. Because uh-huh. the, because Oscar yeah. hates comedy, uh, but but this year of course we have uh, we have La La Land, which certainly Emma Stone is going to get nominated. So it'll be interesting interesting to see who gets who kind of gets the axe because you've got actresses like Isabel Huppert in Elle, you've got actresses like Ruth Nega uh, in Loving who are getting a little bit of talk, and there's only so many spots, uh, which is kind of a shame because I I, I definitely think um, both of those actresses probably um, deserve a nomination for both of those movies, but. But like every year, there's this limited amount of space. I think who pairs getting in. Uh, I hope I you're think, right. Uh, I think I think I think the person who's going to miss out is Amy Adams, and, mm, and I may be. be wrong. I may be wrong, but but that's what I think is going to happen. 
I think so you, I just want to go on record. I think it's just wishful thinking because you didn't like Arrival. I think <laughs> that's not fair. That's not fair uh, because Michael Denniston. Just because you like didn't Arrival, hate it, like Mike, but <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Arrival. I thought it was good. I thought it was fine. You're right in the sense that I didn't think Amy Adams was all that great. I didn't really care much. Uh, I mean, her performance is fine, but the movie doesn't ask a whole lot of her. Mm-hmm. And and so you're right in that regard. Maybe <laughs> that's my own personal opinion bleeding in. You know, but, you know, I I mean, I feel the same way about Meryl Streep, and I think she's going to get nominated. Uh, I didn't like... Really? You think she'll get nominated this year? Oh, really? yeah. she's. I think oh, she's in. God, um, I, I didn't care much for The Girl on the Train, but I think Emily Blunt... Uh, is is probably in fourth or fifth place. That's horrible. Uh, that's horrible. I know. I if agree. Emily Blunt gets nominated over Rupert or Nega, that's just wrong. But doesn't that sound like something the Academy would do? That, that sounds that, that like they would nominate I mean, Emily Blunt at this point, not for, not for Sicario, not right. for Into the Woods, right. but for The Girl on the Train. Doesn't that sound like something, okay. something they would do? Like I've gotten to the point with the Oscars, which is why I've created my own fucking award show. So fuck you, Oscars. Uh, is that nothing they can do will surprise me at this point? Because it's such a crapshoot. Like if Deadpool gets nominated, we're like, yeah, well, you know. They're trying to capture a different market and they're trying to tie into to kind of youth viewers like whatever. I just I don't buy it at this point. Like I don't believe any of the the process is real. It just feels like we're just at some point it feels like we're just picking names out of a hat. Like really Emily Blunt is in The Girl on the Train like that movie was not good. She was fine in it. She did as as well as she could. But that doesn't mean she deserves a nomination for God's sake. Come on. I, I agree with you, but it's funny. But um, it's the Oscars. I've talked to I've talked to at least one industry person who came to me without me asking them, and they, they and they were they were insane about the girl on the train. They, they loved it. So they I, should have I, their I, rights just, revoked. Like just <laughs> get out of the industry. You. Have. I'm just I'm just going to say that. So <laughs> yeah, like he's, like there is nothing. I mean, except for movies like La La Land getting nominated, there are no guarantees. Like. I mean, I, and, and, and in fairness, it's one of the things that makes the announcement of these nominations interesting is that there's always one or two nominations where everyone just whips their head around and is like, what? That really? Okay. You know, so I wonder what that'll be this year. I hope it's not. I mean, I love Emily Blunt and she's deserved nominations in other films, but I hope that that's not the reason my head whips around this year in about a week uh, when those nominations come out. But there's, you know, there's always something. It's very likely, I think. I think she got a SAG nomination and she then did. a BAFTA nomination. And and that usually means that the SAG nomination wasn't for nothing. Um, right. You yep. know what I mean? Uh, same thing with Aaron Taylor Johnson, who I, I mean, I hated Nocturnal Animals. I hated it so much. <laughs> Flames on the side of my face. <laughs> Um, uh, loving that it. reference and, that's great um but but yeah i have to admit i have to admit like like you know a sag nomination uh, a golden globe win and a bafta nomination that usually means that that person is probably a lot higher than we're giving them credit for being so you know see and i didn't even i didn't hate that movie i i kind of liked it but i i thought he was the worst part of it so the fact that he was getting nominated i was like what what are we what are we doing? Really? The star of Kick-Ass? That's where we're at? The star of Kick-Ass is going to gonna win an Oscar? Come on. This is... It, it's... You know, and then you hear, like, this pub for Deadpool maybe getting a, a Best Picture nomination, and it just... I know. At some point, it just becomes laughable. And I didn't hate Deadpool. Like, I had moments of enjoyment in that movie. It was fine, you know? But it's not... It's not the best movie of the year. It's not even in the top 50. Like, come on. Settle down, Oscar. I, I did not see Deadpool, and you know why? Because why you're an I adult. Because you're an adult. an adult. I know. <laughs> and, and you people should try being one at some point. Nah, it's overrated, lies. man. It's overrated. <laughs> Adulthood is overrated. All right. Uh, so that's it for our little bit of Oscar talk. Uh, so, Ben, once again, thanks for joining me on the show, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back very soon. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. It was really good to be back and talk to all of you. And if you'd like to help out the show, there's a bunch of ways you could do that. You can find me on Twitter 
at PCK Study. Just follow me there and I'll be sure to interact with you. Uh, you can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like the True Bromance Film Podcast and War Machine vs. Warhorse. Uh, but if you really want to go the extra mile beyond telling people about the show and just keeping listening because that's the best thing you can do, you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And you can actually get some pretty cool rewards if you donate too. So be sure to do that and support your local independent podcast. All right. So that's it uh, for now. The next time we talk, we will be talking about the the new release, L, um, which, of course, also stars Isabelle Huppert. Um, so look forward to that. And until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good. Uh, I spent all this time fiddling with my mic uh, the last half hour, and then I opened up this Roger Ebert review of Violetta here, and uh, almost at the end of it, uh, but but I probably should have spent my time better uh, <laughs> leading up to this. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to listen to this episode anyway, so I'm sure I, maybe, I don't think so either. You're going to look at the title <laughs> and be like, uh, what now? Yeah. <laughs>